Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Sunday night edition of the pod. It will not be a Cleveland Cavaliers sweep of the Boston Celtics. Quite the contrary. In fact, Boston blowing out Cleveland. The closest it got was 14 in the second half. The final... 108 to 83 and certainly i think the 83 part of that including only 35 points in the first half is the most noteworthy absolutely and watching the beginning part of the game i'm sure there were people who you know focused on the offense after all boston we talked about how that was going to be a swing point in the series and they scored 36 points in the first quarter but to me the story was boston's defense and in the first half especially because that's really when they built the lead that they held on to for the rest of the game and then pushed it a little bit as it got out of hand the celtics were just forcing cleveland into much more challenging, more contested shots than I anticipated. And there were a couple of really cool kind of process approach things that I really liked about it. And also it was just incredibly well executed. What were those things? Okay, so one of the, there were a couple of big elements that I was noticing. I rewatched the first quarter. I watched it live, of course, and then watched it shortly before we recorded. And Boston had these kind of two ideas that I could, as far as I could discern it. One is play one-on-one as much as is reasonable so that, you know, they switched a lot. They were more comfortable one-on-one, even in matchups that I would consider mismatches. They had Rozier on LeBron a couple times, a few, a few different matchups that I thought were weird. And then when, when they doubled, they had faith that they would be able to still get a good contest on the first pass and then be able to scramble and recover to the second pass. And one of the best plays on this, I tweeted about it when it happened, Jalen Brown got in the lane and messed up. I think it was a LeBron drive because he was actually helping off Kyle Korver in the corner, but Marcus Morris was in position to help on that pass if they made it, and then they would have gotten somebody else out to, I believe that was George Hill that was the second pass in that circumstance. And so what Boston didn't concede were just really easy buckets anywhere on the floor most of the time. Yeah, to your point, when you have the athletes, and not only you have the athletes, but you trust your teammates to execute, right? Jalen Brown, that's Kyle Korver. You help Kyle Korver gets a wide open three. That doesn't. That is your man, Kyle Korver. You you are, are responsible for him in theory, but it's not about stopping your man from scoring. It's about stopping the team from scoring. And a play like that, he has to trust that someone is going to go and get Korver, and then that they'll be they'll have to rotate the ball again. And that these amazing athletes that they have are going to fly out. They're going to x out properly. They're going to make the right decision. The other thing that I was extremely impressed by was the switching that they did and then how incredibly seamless the scram switches behind the play where there is one in which 
they actually switched it while the pass was being lobbed in the air to Kevin Love. When the pass gets thrown, I think it was Rozier who was the post-up defender. By the time he gets there, Tatum is there. Love turns and faces and gets stripped by Tatum. They they go the other way. Uh, And many times, of course, they're able to execute that switch because Cleveland is very kind of set piece uh, on some of these plays. They're able to execute that switch before even any pass was thrown in when it was a mismatch they're fronting in the post they're making it difficult they're to help from behind when tristan thompson was in the game they're able to gum up the spacing off of him and then the individual defense on james was actually marcus morris picked up two fouls in the first two minutes of the game oh well time for him to go to the bench oh wait no brad stevens his philosophy he said it after the game is if he fouls out in the first quarter fine someone else, someone else has to come into him and as it turned out morris never really was in foul trouble he finished the game with 34 minutes and three fouls after getting two in the first two minutes of the game yeah they threw a lot of different guys at lebron at different moments we did see more semi ojale something we had wondered about because he had gotten pretty marginalized later on the series partially because marcus smart was doing so well against philly so they they went and you know marcus smart did play more he played 25 minutes in this game but they threw they got gave lebron a lot of looks and a a stat that was pretty eye-popping is that cleveland only got four what would be considered what are classified as unguarded catch and shoot attempts in the entire first half yeah and one was corver one was loving these were not uh clarkson had one and i think smith had one uh and one was rodney hood on a two-pointer off a baseline out of bounds so they did a great job of guarding there uh you mentioned ojale morris pretty much every single play by james except for one which was a weird layup that he just looked like it just squirted out of his hands on the baseline when he beat jalen brown had a guy usually his own man still bothering him still in between him and the room and he made a couple of those he had a nice lefty layup uh, along the lane line but a lot of times uh, there was a stretch in the second quarter where Morris cut James off a couple times forced him into fadeaways and overall for the entire game James took a mere five shots at the rim and if you go back even to the Indiana series where they were the Cavs were well defended you know even then James was getting 10 shots at the rim and a half and certainly against Toronto he was able to get there whenever he wanted and this Boston team just was so connected even Baines was excellent on the perimeter now Cleveland did go 0 for 10 on threes there were some good closeouts like Horford had a great one after an offensive rebound he blocked Love's three-pointer they made life difficult for the Cavs to be sure but the Cavaliers are generally going to shoot it a little bit better than 0 for 10 on threes in the first half and you know James will shoot it better as well he's going to be more engaged more aggressive um what about uh when Boston had the ball what'd you see there Boston did a much better job as you would expect both because of Cleveland's weakness and Boston's own strength I thought they did a much better job attacking in transition than in the half court that was actually a part of what led to the mini Cleveland comeback in the third quarter was Boston just bogging down a little bit settling for some shots but they pushed the ball well and I think what really turned it on once they got out of that little funk in the third quarter was the best way to attack Cleveland in those half court sets is just to drive towards the basket because they're not great at help they're not 
great at scrambling and recovering. And a lot of there, there's usually a place to attack. And Boston, you know, it's not necessarily like they have five Kyrie Irvings out there at this point. You know, they don't even have one Kyrie Irving, but they have a lot of guys that are comfortable with the ball in their hands. And Cleveland does not play solid on ball defenders at at many spots at any given time. So I thought Rozier did a better job going downhill. Jalen Brown did a better job. Tatum did a better job later on in that third quarter. So they were able to get more reliable looks either for that player or more often actually on a pass as somebody kind of turned the other way or something else to get looks off of that penetration. Boston is well known for the way that they move the ball. But really, I thought early in the game, they set the tone by playing a fair amount of isolation basketball, getting the switch. Kyle Korver was hunted relentlessly, and he didn't really play as much. And Korver is a huge part of what makes the Cavs so good. Rodney Hood was playing okay-ish, and maybe that's part of why Korver didn't play as much as well uh, when he came in for his stint. But they went at him with Marcus Morris a a couple of times. They went at him with Tatum. And you talked about this sagely, I thought, in the preview that Corver doesn't really have a place to hide in this series on a Bogdanovich or on an OG Ananobi or he's got a guard and and the Celtics are going to go after him uh Al Horford also going into the post against Kevin Love I think maybe they saw number one Horford has just been better in the post uh, this season Uh, but also I think they saw the efficacy of Valanciunas in the previous series going at Love in the post and Horford can rise up over the top of Love. Love uh, was not able to deal with him. And then in pick and pop as well on possessions where Love was the primary defender on Horford, he went seven for eight in this game per uh, ESPN. And they really, I, I thought early on, it was a question of the individuals getting beaten. And then in the second quarter, when the, they went on another run, it, I thought it was really just the Cavs making an army of mistakes. They had no plan. I mean, you know, it's difficult to guard, but they had no plan on Horford pick and pops. They were leaving Horford wide open for three. Then they would have, yeah. Oh, wait, I want to bring up one of those because it was a play that you don't see very often. Horford slipped a pick and pop and Love just straight up lost him. Like, I think they just didn't really know what to do. So it was a kind of above the break pick and roll. And Horford never went to the basket. He just kind of slid away from it. And he was just wide open. I think he didn't kind of think about how wide open he was and just strokes the three. And I was just sitting there going, you should have a plan for this. Like, it wasn't too complicated in action. It was probably a miscommunication. Usually in those circumstances it is. But yeah, I was just, I was blown away by, by a couple of those basic miscommunications. Also, Cleveland, they just, with this lineup that they're playing a lot and yes Tristan Thompson did play 21 minutes in this game and there were times that I thought they looked better defensively when he was out there but they have so little help defense partially because Boston's generally playing four or five guys you can shoot yeah and you don't think of them as this great shooting team but unless it's smart or Ojale you know they don't you don't really have anyone that you can sag off of it and I mean we saw Horford score basically three buckets in a row on love late in the first and then Cleveland was just screwing up the coverage every way they could. You mentioned that one. There's another one where they had Love just kind of lay back for some reason, and then it looked like he was supposed to sprint out to the corner, but both he and Corver started running to the corner. This is that three at the very end of the half that Jim Brown hit. Uh, Start sprinting towards the, the corner. Then neither of them actually, they both saw each other, and they both stopped, and then Brown just got the, the wide open three, and they had a bunch of those. Also for Boston, Jalen Brown, I didn't think that he would be back yet and he's still not like the absolute nuclear high flyer but he had enough juice now where he felt comfortable 
attacking in transition and that was huge particularly anytime James missed a shot and he was a of course had his worst playoff game in some time at only five out of 16 with seven turnovers in this one negative 32 uh but anytime James missed a shot James he never gets back after he misses a shot and so they pushed it on those uh there was one where James had to take this impossible fade away in the corner and then they just ran it right down I wanted to talk about that play actually yeah. That play was one of the best late clock defensive possessions I've seen on LeBron. It was Al Horford that forced that shot. And what happened was LeBron got the ball in the corner with about seven seconds to go. And the first four seconds of that ISO, Horford basically said, you're not going to drive on me. He was kind of in position to, to slow that down. And then once it got to three, he went, the only thing you have left is a setback, drove out to him. And LeBron actually shot that kind of fading out of the court and he was then he was gone from the play the shot missed missed by far and i think boston got a layup off that yeah so the individual defense was solid and especially with james just not attacking as hard as he normally does um the other thing that we it didn't go as well the other thing i didn't really see much of was the screen for kevin love out of the corner now they've got more size on on corver now so doing that screen with love and corver which they'd been doing all of the toronto series doesn't work as well now because they can just switch that off the ball but in the indiana series they had great success doing that with george hill who, whoever was being guarded by it was darren collison in that series so whoever's being guarded by rozier we didn't see that much of that that i can recall uh where love was starting the corner he gets a screen from george hill and then swings right into the post um so i think the Cavs could start to look at that more uh, but certainly the ability of Boston to switch and then get just enough size uh, on Love. And I thought Cleveland, in some respects, played a little bit too fast. I think that they need to be more patient, use their size advantage, because they do have somewhat of an advantage, back down and really force a double team. Now, also worth noting the Cavs were only 9 out of 17 at the rim in the first half, and Boston was 14 out of 17, and a lot of those are just like missed layups from love from thompson plays that they'll probably make i mean boston is not an incredible rim protecting there's one play where love had jalen brown and couldn't use his left hand and ended up just getting blocked into oblivion by brown um so i cleveland is going to play a lot better i think in games in this series you know i i i still believe that cleveland will win the series but certainly boston uh came through in a way that, that especially defensively you know this is a boston team that has largely gotten shredded and i think now with just so few places that are just obvious to attack cleveland may have to reevaluate their strategy a little bit as compared to you know say the toronto series there are also a lot of elements for cleveland that i expect to go better but that have to go better for them to win games in boston like so for you talked about you know zero for 12 on threes in the first half missed missed the series of shots at the restricted area if both those things go better maybe that adds 10 12 points to the ledger maybe even 15 and that would also take away some of some of the transition opportunities for boston especially the missed layups because cleveland they had five they only had five offensive rebounds and they missed a bunch of shots in the restricted area so it's not like they were those were like valentunas situations where he guy catches his own miss and all that so you know doing better there will help but they also need to be more consistent defensively because if Boston, you know, basically, basically they need to be significantly better on both sides of it because either one isn't enough to make up the difference in a game like this. I had a few other uh, small notes here. Holy hell, was Jordan Clarkson bad today? Uh, oh, man. I mean, I, I, just, I may I have about like four or five notes on things that happened in, involving him. <laughs> uh, 
he couldn't keep Marcus Smart in front of him on a number of pick and rolls or Rozier just straight up getting beaten without even, you know, maybe there'd be a fake screen, but, you know, until somebody hits you, you continue trying to slide your feet on a guy. Uh, he gave up a layup to Jason Tatum when he failed to help on a back screen. He gave up a wide open layup to Rozier that he missed uh, by just getting back cut without just losing his man. Uh, Rozier just missed the layup. And then Clarkson celebrated that by coming down and just getting blocked into the stands by Al Horford. Uh, he airballed a shot from mid-range over Aaron Baines trying to take him one-on-one. Took a really tough three uh, on a DHO. And it was he uh, just was so bad. I mean, he gave up like three or four plays just through his own individual bad defense. And that was only in the first half. Uh, and he was no better in the second half so that was a major problem i thought that just in general i mean cleveland was like getting destroyed by a marcus smart marcus morris pick and roll like it's not that hard to guard you just go under on marcus smart and make him shoot a three like it's really and you can go away if you wanted marcus smart to get all the way to the basket and try to finish it over a contest fine like let him do that but like to switch that and then uh they lo- smart through a great pass lobbing it in jr smith completely asleep on the backside marcus morris just gets a dunk nobody even reacts when they're front george o's fronting in the post i mean it was really not good at all uh and just the level of physicality that boston played with smart morris i mean cleveland just wasn't ready for that and they weren't ready for how connected boston was going to be defensively and just i, I mean boston has pretty good defensive personnel uh you know it, you could it shows what a difference it makes both them and the warriors when you know it's not just hey we have one guy to guard lebron it's everyone was gonna at least compete against lebron or compete against kevin love like that just makes such a difference as opposed to oh we're just putting cj miles on and now we're all too scared to help and lebron just goes right at him you know it's a little bit of a difference there it was a major difference and i expect that to continue throughout this series i mean a lot of the fundamentals here that looked good for boston will they, they will tone down but they're still present and i'm going to be interested to see boston's half court offense in game two that was, you know, it was inconsistent in game one. They were able to thrive because their defense was fantastic and all these other moments, but as those toned down and yeah, I'm, I'm really ex- excited to see on Tuesday what happens in a game that's maybe a little bit more competitive throughout, but Boston played with so much, they played with force, they played with energy, but they also didn't make mistakes. And that was something I noticed in the first quarter. I think it was the first quarter, it might've been the whole first half. Yeah. In the entire first half, Cleveland only turned the ball over four times. You know, that the Cleveland is a low turnover team. Boston only turned it over six times. So Cleveland wasn't able to make any hay out of that difference. And then offensive rebounds was a slight difference as well. So it wasn't, they weren't able to create those advantages that were more present against both the Raptors and the Pacers. In terms of things to, to watch for potential, you know, I'm not sure I want to play Thompson that much more. Tristan Thompson, although I think he can really have an effect on the offensive glass in the series. He did have four offensive rebounds and eight points in 21 minutes so it was negative 12 though and obviously playing him compromises the spacing but you do and when they're switching everything he's maybe he can do more on the offensive glass off those switches but he's not a guy who's going to post up or anything necessarily he missed a couple of layups inside too that i thought maybe could have helped them as they were struggling so badly early on uh love did leave lead cleveland with 17 points i think more pick and pop from love uh, would be helpful and then just more more patience offensively from both james and love to really get in the lane like boston it did a great job of stunting but not really helping and then getting over their guys i thought that they were able to be successful 
when they forced the hard doubles like love had a really nice pass to thompson and he just blew the layup out of that james obviously is a great passer he's not gonna have seven turnovers in the next game he he really played with the least force we've seen him play with all season like just getting stripped at out near half court by marcus smart you know it's stuff like that where he really just was not as engaged uh which is a surprise with the amount of rest that he well had. you've talked before that lebron turnovers are a good calibrator for how much a team is getting into him and how out of sorts he is and i mean seven is in line with that yeah i think it reflected what what the game was five of which uh were live ball Mm -hmm. uh and oh one other thing i would generally avoid playing jordan clarkson with lebron i mean a lot of what he brings just doesn't really matter in those minutes and if he does you you should have stopped speaking uh about two words earlier in that sentence sure And if Jordan Clarkson plays with LeBron, which I don't think he should, and he takes more than one dribble and then shoots, take him off the floor immediately. Like he he is so like there there is a line of confidence that is really dangerous when a player isn't as good as they think they are. And I think Clarkson toes that line. I mean, it's so funny because we've talked about him a lot over the years and you have to recalibrate what you think is a good shot when you're playing with superior offensive players. And Jordan Clarkson has never done that in his entire career. It's just that a lot of time when he was on the Lakers, he didn't play with those guys. You know, they they, they didn't have those types of players. But now LeBron, Kevin Love, depending on the game, you know, a couple of games, George Hill's actually been pretty good. You can't just take your pull-up 20-footer, 18-footer because that's a bad shot when you're playing with LeBron James. I'd like to see more switching from Cleveland and certainly when Thompson is in the game I think and because a lot of times he doesn't play with Corver I think you you just switch and you know try to make these guys make jumpers over the top which they're capable of doing certainly uh, and I thought Boston did a good job of not settling in those situations but ultimately if your guys are getting beat one-on-one you know you're still forcing generally a pretty difficult shot and James certainly could stand to be more engaged defensively as a help guy but it's just you know cleveland doesn't have the type of communication oh we're going to switch out uh behind the play or anything but i I think especially when thompson is in the game you know jason tatum did have a really nice shot at the end of the first quarter over thompson but thompson i think is tough for most of these guys to score against milwaukee who definitely has better personnel than the Cavs do but they had pretty good success defensively uh, switching stuff Uh, also i think if you are trapping as cleveland you are playing right into boston's hands because they just move the ball really well we've seen them beat up teams like the bucks for example and boston doesn't have you know that one focus that one victor oladipo that one damian lillard type of guy where oh we get the ball out of this guy's hands no like they are built to swing the ball and then attack closeouts with an advantage or or take the open three and so i think trying to force them to go one-on-one more taking away their ball of movement i think would really be helpful um but I, I and also you know maybe don't shoot four out of 26 on three pointers again that that uh that might help him as well that that's not an adjustment necessarily but uh yeah i mean obviously they're gonna have to win this next game there's a lot of pressure on them now down two zero is not where you want to be although i certainly would not count out a lebron team until they're down three zero but uh, this will be very interesting and uh certainly if you can hold james and love to 32 points combined you're looking pretty good as boston so uh, this next game is gonna be very interesting if they even if cleveland wins if they really struggle to score you know kind of the way they did for a lot of the indiana series i think we're gonna have a real long series on our hands even if cleveland wins so i want to see 
what Cleveland's offense looks like, whether they're really spreading the floor, getting those easy buckets or not, or whether Boston's going to continue to be effective. Yeah, I'm excited to see it. Well, I am really excited for this next game, and I will be counting the hours until it using my movement watch. They've now doubled the number of watch styles on their site, and they are growing like crazy. They started just $95, though, which is a lot less than what you'd find at a department store. I was never really a watch guy because I felt like spending $400 on a watch was kind of what I felt like I needed to to find a watch that I'd like to, to seem just ridiculously expensive. And with movement, that is not the case, and they are great gifts both for men and women. My mom has one. She bought them for my cousins for their birthdays as well. They've even expanded to sunglasses and bracelets for women. So the way to get started with them, and I, I think this is just what I'd recommend, is go to movement.com slash capspace. That's mvmt.com slash capspace. And you can get 15% off, but just check out the watches that they have. It's a really impressive collection. Also a great way for international listeners to support the podcast because they sell in over 160 countries. Check out all of their great styles. If you've been there before, they've got even more stuff now so that that url again movement.com slash cap space easy remember cap space we talk about it all the time here on the program and get your 15 percent off today with free shipping and free returns that's movement.com mvmt.com slash cap space join the movement well we've got a little bit of news to get to we are later on this than some but Dwayne casey was fired in Toronto, you and I had a long debate uh, during the Toronto offseason podcast over whether he should be fired or not. I think Masai Ujiri uh, saw it from my perspective, and it, he is taking a risk. I acknowledge that. I, I think it is more likely than not, in fact, that whichever coach they get, at least for the regular season next year, will be a downgrade from Casey. But I also think it would be very difficult to not be an upgrade in the playoffs. And Michael Grange wrote a nice piece, which I recommend you read if, if you're interested in this situation, on why it was that Casey was fired. And he cited Ujiri's frustration with his strategic failures. Things like not doubling LeBron James after the Cavs surprised Casey by taking it out full court. Now, I, I don't necessarily think it was that easy to do that. We talked about that after, after that game uh failed inbounds plays as well were cited by grange the way that cleveland was able to so easily attack cj miles some of the rotational decisions including putting Pepe in in game four was another one although apparently according to grange ujiri is not really blameless here he after game three was like angrily dressing down casey in the coach's office which could be heard in the locker room which is i mean for a gm to get angry at the coach like that after any game i think unless it's just something like you know we had a minutes limit on this guy and you violated that minutes limit or i gave you a specific directive about this that's like a you know something that would be more of a gm uh type of thing you know, as opposed to a strategic thing, like yelling at the coach like that, I don't care how pissed off you are after a loss. I mean, that's not really a good look. Uh, but I, I think it was pretty clear to me that this was just, especially when you compare them to Boston. I know Boston has Brad Stevens, but the way that Toronto defended versus the way that Boston defended, I mean, Toronto has a lot of athletes. Not, not many of them saw the floor <laughs> at the same time, which was a, another problem. But it seems clear to me that they should have a better strategy and very easily could have a better strategy in the playoffs. I mean, the stuff that Casey was getting fired for was all the stuff that we were saying throughout the series. Yeah, and all those criticisms were well-founded. I, I didn't disagree with any of them. It was just kind of how you how you weighed all these approaches. And we don't need to rehash and relitigate this. But I am very interested to see not only 
where they go with this, but who gets the job? And this puts a little bit more heat on the Bucks because Toronto is at least a, a roster that's more ready-made to succeed right now because they just did. I mean, they, they finished with the best record in the East, second best point differential, I believe, in, in the overall NBA. And Budenholzer, sounds like it is is worth considering there and then also they have a lot of options in-house yeah and, and it was, it's been reported that Budenoser will get serious consideration Rex Calamium kind of the defensive side of the ball there a, a long time Casey right-hand man Nick Nurse who was part of their offensive renaissance this season worked in Houston for their G League team and was a part of their crazy experiment which is, a lot of which has been brought up to the big club just taking a ton of threes and he was, he famously was the guy who create gave four points for three pointers and zero or negative one for mid-range jumper. i think it was like four points for corner threes i think it was uh but you know we, we don't really know that much about any of these guys certainly i think the offensive changes that they've made and remember this was not an offensive loss for the raptors in large part in this series jerry stackhouse going to get some consideration as well i will say that if your hope is to upgrade strategically in the playoffs and beat lebron james i don't know that for that specific task mike budenholzer would be number one on my list because he had a very similar mo of just getting worked in the playoffs by james not really having the strategy he'd done some weird stuff in the playoffs with rotations famously not bringing al horford back in the game and in against brooklyn in 2015 when he had five fouls until there was like 30 seconds left in regulation you know so he, he definitely does some weird stuff with rotations and uh you know it does not appear to have the antidote to james either although i do think you know, he certainly believes in a lot of ball movement and uh has a nice resume of developing young players as well and i'm not sure really other unless you're going to go with a first-time head coach and they are supposedly not interested in the van gundy's or mark jackson um i'm not sure where else you're going to go besides bud at this point i would rather see budenholzer in milwaukee just because i think he could do more he could do more with what they have and toronto you know as you said the 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 challenge is different and I think Boonholzer is more in tune with the challenge of Milwaukee. That doesn't mean he's going to take that job. There are a lot of other considerations in play. But yeah, it's another high-profile one that's available. And I think we can go from there to the job that is now filled. Lloyd Pierce, who has been an assistant for the Philadelphia 76ers, is now the head coach of the Atlanta Hawks. Per reporting, I believe, from Woj, it is a three-year deal with a team option for the fourth. That is about as much contract information as we will ever get on a coach. You know, you, you know sometimes you'll get terms, but, you know, usually yeah. in that. And then an, another piece of hot well, well, news, qu- just quickly briefly. Quickly on Pierce. Number one, sure, usually, what, especially if it's an unproven coach like this, three-year deal with a fourth-year team option is, is like kind of derogier. Um, you know, if I had to guess, it'll probably be something in the 2.5 to $3.5 million range. I'm, I'm guessing that, that a big part of the appeal with Pierce with this Hawks team certainly uh in rebuild mode and Pierce is that Pierce has a part of that but also that he he comes relatively cheap at this point uh and then you're going to get to the Kavanaugh waiver right so Tyler Kavanaugh had a surprisingly early partial guarantee date I think it was only like 500,000 but uh, of May 15th and so the Hawks decided to waive him ahead of that that in no way precludes them from bringing him back it was just that they didn't want to commit to that money yeah. right now so he became well unless one of he the gets first claimed. players to get 
I think that yeah, that deadline is is pretty close to already being passed. So they're gonna go go gonna go through that, and you know, the, I I never saw enough from Kavanaugh to really have a strong opinion on him. But we can go to the other interesting piece of news that came out, courtesy of the Athletics, Marcus Thompson, yeah, and you, that, you you co-wrote that piece, or at least or provided I, information. I contributed. I, I, I contributed. I contributed to it, which. Which, which is actually pretty fun because it came out of nowhere. It was just like, all of a sudden, I, I get this thing. Like, what are, what are the logistics of a Clay Thompson extension? And I actually planned on writing a piece about this for The Athletic and had never gotten around yeah. to it. So I had and, to And we've talked about this for Draymond Green, potentially, too, of like, you know, right. especially when you consider these, like, these are the contracts. We talked about this for Paul George, too, and we'll get to the specifics in a minute. But, you know, he can get 120% of what he's making now, which will put him in kind of the low 20s per year. But for a guy like Thompson, for a guy like Green, who's in his late 20s, who is, you know, somewhere maybe a 15th and 20, between the 15th and 25th best player in the NBA, depending on whether you're counting regular season or postseason performance, uh, giving a 30% max extension like, uh, or max contract, like what Paul George is about to get, or what Darren Williams got, or what Blake Griffin got, that's just nearly inevitably going to be an awful contract. Like there are very few players in NBA history that you could sign for a contract starting at 35% of the salary or 30% of the salary cap, not to mention 35 as some may get with designated player at age 28, where that's going to end up being a good contract for the life of it. But if you can agree on an extension now, that makes a lot more sense for the team. And for the player, you know, at least you're taking away some of the risk and it's not that much less money, you know, and especially when you consider that you can only get four years with another team anyway. Right. So if you want to compare that for, for Clay Thompson's deal at the current 108 million estimate, which does not affect his extension, his extension could be maximum money of four years and 102 million. And because that is built off of his prior year salary, it's not affected at all by what happens with the cap. So that's four one Oh two. If it, the 108 million estimate holds, and I still think that's a little high. Yeah, that, that's for the he cap could get, in 2019. In 2019-20. Thompson could get four years, $139 million as his theoretical maximum with another team, and then theoretically he could get five years, 188 with the Warriors. Now, there is an argument to be made that that five years, $188 million is not going to be on the table. It's what he could get. It doesn't mean that will be offered. And for Thompson, there's a value, if, if he wants it, there's a, a value to the security involved in this process and that that he could get to stay with the team that he's been on his entire career and he could be leaving money on the table but we don't know that necessarily so i i understand it and it, it you know it, it would only be waiting a year and he's been a, a pretty consistently healthy player actually remarkably consistently healthy over his career when you consider the injuries that that his backcourt mate has dealt with over time but if if you think about it that the the full value might not be there and that it's a risk premium kind of for both sides. I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Now your big risk there, if you're Thompson is that you get traded at some point, cause you now just agreed to this sure. value contract. That's, that's worth something. Yeah. In the trade. It's like what happens in baseball. Sometimes I, I always think of it with that, where a guy like takes a hometown discount and then they end up trading him like at the deadline that first year. Yeah. But now if, and that's possible. And, and actually if I were Thompson, I would wait probably until the very beginning of the regular season to sign it just because you would be prohibited from being traded for six months uh, under the Carmelo rule. So you at least have immunity through uh, the trade deadline that way. But uh, anyway, I, I think that's something if I were in him position, I would very seriously consider signing, although I do expect him to age reasonably well. And he probably could maybe get that money somewhere else uh, as a free agent. But, you know, $30 million, when he's already will have made well over a hundred million in his career 
it's maybe it's not worth it especially because if you're a warrior you're probably if you stay here you're probably gonna make the hall of fame if you get traded maybe you don't you know you win another championship or two or you know have more postseason heroics uh, whatever it ends up being and endorsement money and exposure all all those elements that could be in play yeah. you know you never know where he could sign maybe it signs with the lakers and they have all sorts of all, all sorts of other opportunities but you don't know that at this point and you know if the cap drops i think i, I did a tentative estimate on this which was not included in the piece that if it dropped to like 104 i think it would be it would be the difference would be less than 30 million dollars over the course of the four-year contract so that narrow that would narrow it to a to a point and yeah, well, we'll see. And it would certainly make things easier for the Warriors to manage. Durant is going to be on a new contract. We all assume he's going to opt out, whatever that deal is, whether it's short term or long term. It's going to get more expensive. And so it would allow them to have a, a, a cleaner understanding. And the this team is going to get ludicrously expensive over time, assuming they keep these players together for a while, just by virtue of not only them, but the contract they gave Iguodala, the contract they gave Sean Livingston. So cost certainty has a value to the Warriors and, and to theoretically any other team. Speaking of cost certainty, the Sixers have that with TJ McConnell. They picked up or will pick up, according to Brian Colangelo, their fourth year team option on McConnell. That still is non-guaranteed through uh, the league-wide cut-down date in January. But uh, God damn it, Sam Hankey. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you know, think of how many roster slots it's he amazing. had to turn through to, to get these guys. Oh, yeah. Uh, but anyway... Uh, that's probably the the right decision i mean with markel fultz a big part of this letting mcconnell get into restricted free agency having to give him a qualifying offer which would take up more of their precious cap space not much but some and they are of course uh, trying to make a big splash in free agency this year and and they still would have full bird rights i don't know he wouldn't be restricted anymore uh but once you see where markel fultz is at and you already got ben simmons probably doesn't really make sense to pay mcconnell a lot of money but certainly he had a, a very nice playoffs and they'll be looking forward to having him as a backstop next year maybe even someone if if Fultz comes into his own that they could look to trade as well or they could even agree to an extension with him that's a great if they point want to too. after yeah. they they could do that you know they have flexibility that's pretty much what happened with Oliver Covington I wouldn't expect a renegotiation extension because they probably won't have the cap space to do it but yeah you get you gain a lot of flexibility with this structure of a contract and why I was why I'm such a big fan of it is because they can you know they had the team option so they could declined it made him a restricted free agent the same decision that Oklahoma City had with Jeremy Grant and it, it worked out kind of the same way for that and we'll see what happens to Grant in, restri in unrestricted free agency this year as kind of a little bellwether for what might happen with McConnell but yeah I think this was the right call because it's kind of getting a little bit too cute my estimate is that I, I didn't run the full numbers on it but that would have been about a million dollars different and that million dollars might in terms of the difference between the qualifying offer and, and the money that he'll get and they might need that million dollars. They don't know that. And McConnell could very well get, I mean, a, a strong offer. We talked about this with Fred Van Vliet when we did the Raptors offseason preview, this idea that there just is not much depth on the point guard market. And it only takes one team thinking your guy's the best option, especially for a successful franchise. I mean, the Sixers won a bunch of games this year, made it to the second round to say, hey, even if we don't get this guy, we make them take a little bit of pain. I could totally see that kind of an offer, you know, five million, six million a year have come into play. And then that's just, it, it would have been more on their books and more to deal with. Agreed on all counts. Let's talk a little young prospects here. We actually, someone tweeted us, where is the Spurs? Young prospects. Well, uh, we ran out of time during the regular season, but a little bit of a lull now as we get into the one game per night territory or in some cases fewer than that. So let's start with the San Antonio Spurs and, uh, I don't think we need to do their fundamentals since they're in the playoffs, obviously lost 4-1 to the 
to the Warriors. We got. What were you going to say? Oh no, I was just going to give their fundamentals, but that's fine. Oh, but then I <laughs> no, just said let's to. not do their fundamentals. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll just say I'll just say what the one most important part to me is that they were fourth in defense despite yeah. having Kawhi Leonard for like 216 minutes this year, which is incredible. Yeah, and it was just, like I listened to your pod with David Locke, which was a, a good one when I was flying back from the East Coast, and he posited the idea that maybe offense is more susceptible to coaching in this day and age. I think maybe there is something to be said for that, as in the last couple of years, teams have gotten better at targeting weak defenders. Again, because almost there's so much more shooting that ISO basketball and post-up basketball works a little bit better now, especially if you have great players. But uh, the Spurs would be a counterpoint to what he was saying that, uh, and, and maybe you could just say, he was like, oh, Mike Malone and Tom Thibodeau are defensive coaches. Well, maybe those guys aren't as good a defensive coaches as we thought we were, and, and big Greg Popovich is, because uh, certainly the, the Spurs did not have a ton of defensive talent, but some of that defensive talent that is underrated is in the form of the Spurs' newly crowned starting point guard, DeJounte Murray, who uh, was 21 this season, and really, you have to start with his defense. He's going to get some all-defense votes from people we respect. Probably not enough to actually be on the all-defensive team because people... That, that is a lagging indicator by a couple of years, it seems, for most of the general voting public among the media. But Murray, with his length, his quickness, his anticipation, Popovich has gotten him to play hard and to execute. And while he's still a little bit skinnier than you might like as a switch guy, still just a, a devastating defender. I mean, he's a guy, when he and Kawhi Leonard, if those two guys ever play together, they're going to just get gobs of steals. Yeah. And Murray, this was his age 21 season coming out of Washington after one year. And defensively, he's an absolute menace. Can I think theoretically he can end up guarding, you know, on not necessarily on switches, but just kind of have him in a couple different alignments, depending on what kind of player the Spurs want to pair him with. They did some with Murray and Patty Mills together. I don't necessarily love that combination, but there are other, you know, maybe bigger, bigger guards that can shoot catch and shoot situations that could work pretty well. But the big question with Murray is what can he do offensively? And so when a player is dubbed a point guard, a lot of that comes in with what what can they do off the bounce? Can they score? Can they shoot? But then also, if he you know is kind of in the hybrid hybrid guard position offensively, then it's can he shoot in spot ups in catch and shoot situations? And I think there's there are certainly some pieces there that can be molded, but his jump shot is still a major concern. It is, and on three pointers this season, nine out of thirty four, twenty seven percent. But the thirty four attempts is even more worrisome in, in 1700 minutes yeah uh, and it's just it's so hard to build around a guy who you're not going to have yet as your primary guy with the ball in his hands and he can't shoot all he showed a little more facility facility as the year went on shooting from the corners hit a couple of those in the warriors series just watching him warm up before games he's practicing off the dribble long twos and those are looking a little better he also has a very nice floor he only shot 36 percent on those floaters this season but it's a shot that he's very comfortable with. Could finish better at the rim as well, though, with the, the limited spacing in a lot of the lineups. I mean, he would be starting with like Kyle Anderson in some of these lineups, plus a center. It's not going to be that easy for him to finish at the rim. He's gotten better there. Still has to get stronger. He's very, very good in transition and can get up for some dunks pushing the ball. That's something that this is a rather calcified Spurs team, so they don't take advantage of that much, but certainly a lot of times off of his own steals. But I mean, if you zoom out a little bit, yeah, he's only 21, but I mean, 49% true shooting gets to the line about average or so 
and 21 percent usage great defensive player also a great defensive rebounder gets 22 percent of defensive rebounds which uh helps the spurs be among the league leaders in that category but i mean i i still question whether he's really gonna be a quality starter just because he's got so far to go with the jump shot and if he can't be an off-ball guy at all he's not the level of passer of like a ricky rubio you know i'd say he's average to below average as a passer right now uh, among point guards never someone who's like wowed you with his vision you're not going to put together a highlight reel of Dejounte murray's best passes so he's got a lot of potential if he can learn how to shoot comfortably i think he get there but you know we, we talked about this during that spurs series that chip england is supposed to be this wizard but really he's only got like a two or three success stories and they've got a lot of other guys on this team we'll get to more of them who have not really been able to develop uh, as shooters i was thinking about frank tilkina when thinking about Dejounte nilkina nilkina that was that was a throwback nilkina we're uh we, yeah. we, remember we called him that for the entire podcast we we did uh on his potential that was yeah. embarrassing at some point i'll get it right that point is not right now and so the idea behind those guys offensively is okay well what can they do well what can't they and frank's jump shot to me is much closer and as a catch and shoot player in in france yeah i thought he actually did a pretty good job and murray does not have that facility yet he had 0.7 points per possession on spot ups this year that isn't great and it could get, you know, that that might, that's the easiest thing to me, generally speaking, when you look at player progression to get better, they could just get a set shot, you know, get the, get the lower body sound, get the upper body there, but he has so many other things to work on. So I love both of those guys defensively, but offensively, it's going to be a challenge for both. But I think Frank is probably closer to me to being viable on that end than DeJounte Murray is right now. Yeah, Nilakina, I mean, had some wonderful shooting games at the youth levels, but, uh, for Murray, also his facility is a pick-and-roll ball handler, in part because you can just go under on him at will. 0.69 points per possession. That's horrendous. 27th percentile, uh, especially as a high-volume guy. Does have some skills as a cutter, but that's you because he's your point guard and he's hanging out in the dunker spot, which is not exactly where you want your point guard for optimal spacing. And then in isos, not a big part of his game either. You know, So he's very switchable defensively, which is another problem and only... 0.66 points per possession in ISO. That's 17th percentile. So really long way to go. He's got a lot of quickness. He's got some moves. I like his floater game, but the jump shot has to come around and, and the history of guys, especially, well, this is the other thing too, Danny. He's made like almost zero progress. I mean, maybe a little bit on his two-point jumper, but like he's he's still like not even close to taking threes. He wasn't even taking threes in summer league last year. Yeah, that's good. A good point. I hadn't really thought about that too much, but I, I agree with you. And also, I'm sure there are some people who are going, oh, well, you know, DeJounte Murray shot 39% on threes last year. Well, that was only on 24, 23 attempts, sorry. And that's, you know, that's the, the virtue of a small sample size is that sometimes a couple of those shots are going to go in, but it isn't there. He is a 70% free throw shooter. So that is, I would say, a slightly positive sign, yeah, but not a massive. still pretty crappy for a guard, though. Right. It is. Uh, and I, I think, too, I don't know what the history is, you know, in the last 10 years or so of guards who have played this many minutes and attempted this few three-pointers, but I'm guessing that there is not a fantastic history of those guys eventually developing reliable three-point shots. Uh, you know, he's 
he reminds a little bit of alfred payton in some ways uh you know maybe maybe he'll be much better defensively than payton obviously but you know it'd be hard to see him getting beyond where payton is as an offensive player unless significant changes occur a few other guys we have to get to kyle anderson at age 24 certainly took some steps forward this year they're able to be effective with him on the floor especially with him playing at the four late in the year the starting lineup with aldridge at center and him at the four was quite effective but just another guy who has some pretty big limitations he's gotten a lot out of his talent defensively he's got great hands those that seven four wingspan he's really good at poking the ball away from guys when it looks like he's going to be beaten but can't really switch on to the fastest players and then just the total lack of a jump shot again just a major problem and we saw that totally hamstring them in the series against the Warriors. Yeah, and this was Anderson's age 24 season, so I would assume this is the last time he will appear in this sort of a breakdown. He shot 69% in the restricted area this year, which is a pretty significant upgrade, not only from where he was last year, but especially where he started. I don't know if that's going to necessarily continue maybe goes back into the low to mid 60s but another big question with anderson is whether he'll continue hitting his mid-range jumpers like so last year he was high 20s i think like 28 percent overall this year mid 40s and generally when a player vacillates that hard you wonder a little bit and so toning down those a little bit i still don't love him defensively better this year than in prior years but not the type of player that I would really pay for. He can be a rotation piece and wings are incredibly valuable, but unless your team is capped out and we'll see where San Antonio is in this process, paying him makes it harder to add in guys who could potentially have a higher ceiling. Yeah, I mean, unless he's going to be like a total stopper guy in the wing, I don't think you can live with his offense. I think he's a very good part of a team defense, but man, he is slow and can't shoot. It's just tough to deal with. It'd be very interesting to see what happens with him in restricted free agency if recent spurs history is any indication they will uh be overpaying him massively but maybe that won't be the case uh that was Bertans, i thought had a disappointing year to me he just the ball just doesn't quite go in enough on three-pointers for him i mean i love the versatility of his jump shot you've referenced before that he's more athletic off the dribble and defensively than some would think but overall just the the shooting he's got to be a 40 percent three-point shooter to really kind of be what we need him to be it and 37 percent but you know just again not a guy who was knocking him down every single time and you know that's 39 percent if it's 40 percent maybe he'll get there but he's already 25 and another guy he'll be an arenas limited restricted free agent this year but just doesn't quite have that one amazing skill and you're kind of if you're going to get him at this point in free agency or if you're re-signing him you're kind of doing it in the hope that he's going to get that as opposed to that you know that it's already there Another kind of bedrock concern with players who are shooters first is Bertans is not a great defensive rebounder. He's about 14% this year. And yeah, he's playing the four, not the five. And they often play traditional centers, but I'd love to see that a little bit higher. And he shot a good percentage at the rim this year, but he never gets there. So it's, you know, again, it's a small sample size issue and he doesn't get to the free throw line very often because that's not really where Bertans is on the floor. So a player that it's nice to have in restricted free agency at this point because it's hard to see another team being sold but the challenge of restricted free agency with these kind of lower end guys is it only takes one team loving them to just lose them outright because unless there's some sort of sign-in trade which i would doubt it's hard to make that happen Derek white who was 23 when he was drafted already didn't do much with the big club this year did play 24 games in austin and his numbers were middling i would say i mean he had some interesting indicators 31 percent usage 
56% true shooting, which is about average. 5% offensive rebound rate, which is uh, pretty remarkable for a guard. But not a, an amazing assist guy. Only 80 assists in 24 games. And the three-pointer, which is going to be a huge part of his arsenal for the 6-5 combo guard, only 33%, 46 out of 146. I think if you're... And he's not a guy who really has popped to me athletically when you look at him at the NBA level. Every once in a while, he can kind of rise up, but just he looks like just a guy out there when he, even in garbage time when you see him in, in nba games and it's hard to it's hard to really point to what his plus skill is at this point you know if he can get to be a 35 percent three-point shooter and has some size as a competent guard and maybe someone who can run a pick and roll on the backside, uh you know not someone that i'm looking at is going to be getting in the lane a ton and finishing or, or, or anything like that but maybe he could just sort of be the guard version of a kyle anderson <laughs> in some ways who just is doesn't have any major weaknesses doesn't have any major strengths can be out there doesn't kill you uh but especially considering he's already 23 and see anything about him that i was like so fired up for this year agreed and the spurs have had a few misses in the late first round and those could end up haunting them a little bit just because they've needed to find guys and another player who hasn't really lived up to what i hoped for him is Bryn Forbes. Forbes did play 1,500 minutes in his age 24 season this year as they needed more depth on the perimeter with Kawhi being out and other injuries, including Danny Green. Can make his threes. Shot 39% this year, which was a big upgrade on, on his 32% the year before. But didn't do a lot of creating for other people. He was more of a like, kind of an off-guard shooter and is too small to really be a positive consistently defensively you know if you're playing him off guard and he can get posted up by basically most of the twos even backup twos in the league and then gets exploited a lot on switches we saw that in the limited minutes he played in the first round of the western conference playoffs yeah and forbes only taking 46 percent of his shots as threes and so he's really maybe he's just not getting open enough but for and he has a pretty low per and but 52 percent true shooting because he's not taking enough threes like if he, he should be taking 65 percent of his shots as threes and you know maybe teams just weren't leaving him but just too many two-point jumpers from him that are you know 40 percent shots i mean he's with it with his lack of size you know the mid-range shot is not really going to be a great one for him so i think he, he's really got to improve his shot distribution but this is not a spurs team that really generates a, a ton of threes doesn't have anyone who can penetrate off the dribble on the pick and roll and really set him up and so he's got to take a lot more difficult shots coming off of screens and stuff and on what was a limited spurs offense this year i'm not ready to write him off as a contributor but again another one of these guys who's kind of you wonder about all these dudes right even like someone like kyle anderson like or murray even like if this guy wasn't playing on the spurs and the spurs system would we even be talking about this guy as an nba rotation player like you think probably not you know well murray's defense i think would, would sure, carry sure. but 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 yeah i mean kyle anderson if he goes to a different team i'm gonna be very interested to see what he contributes uh, let's move on here talk a little rockets and we've talked a ton about clint capella in these playoffs so i don't think we need to belabor the point on him but he's been awesome uh and his ability to block shots to move his sweet feet to switch on to just about anyone at least in the first two runs we'll see how that goes against kevin durant and steph curry in this round and whether he can maintain the level of communication uh, that's been necessary but certainly i mean even just to be what he's been so far in these playoffs and then also one of the best finishers in the nba around the room whether it's on alley-oops his touch on layups is underrated even his ability to catch at the free throw line take a couple of dribbles and finish has been outstanding excellent offensive rebounder 
as well i mean he's really he's easily worked his way into being one of the top 10 centers in the nba and he there's a rumor that the suns are going to offer him a max contract in restricted free agency uh and well i might hesitate a little bit to offer him that much if you're a team that's like ready to go here and, and you're really thinking of him as you know your second best player in a long-term piece certainly uh he has evolved well beyond anyone's reasonable expectations even kevin pelton's uh who certainly had high expectations for him yeah and it he is close to irreplaceable for the rockets especially considering their cap situation and his ability to switch defensively has opened up so much of of what they did houston was sixth in defense overall this season i think capella was an absolutely massive part of that and he isn't you know he was been better in the playoffs overall i don't think of him as that like real consistent shot alterer rim protector but he's just an overall defensive force which is incredibly valuable and then offensively does a good job of staying in his lane but also has more skill than just like i think he has more skill than deandre jordan and better footwork and knows knows how to get into other shots though he is really good at catching lobs finding the space and knowing knowing how to time everything out and he has great teammates for that but has made the most of it to be sure yeah much higher usage than say a deandre jordan with 19.5 percent usage you also noted 56 percent from the line this season which is a career high that's important it's good enough that uh although i actually wouldn't be shocked to see steve kerr go uh with an acapella rendering uh of uh the fouling song the intentional fouling uh, on clint capella that wasn't funny uh joe chi really skinny but incredibly long prospect was drafted in 2016 in the second round they brought him over this year spent most of his time in the g league not really enough nba action to discuss in any detail did play 24 games for rio grande valley starting 19 of them the three-pointer 28 out of 84 so 33 percent not terrible um but not a great free throw shooter though and maybe more damning than that only 55 free throw attempts in 24 games you know so not a guy who's really doing much around the rim did manage 2.3 blocks a game in 26 minutes but he's gonna have to get a lot stronger i'm not sure he has the frame to do that he may also be a little bit too slow a foot and if he can't really slide his feet in pick and roll defense and then he's also not really strong enough to hold up in post defense or when guys go into his chest at the rim maybe he can get there but I, you know i'm not sure about him and he he has some tools with that amazing wingspan with the you know a decent touch from three-point range but i'm not sure that he can do anything offensively whatsoever except shoot threes uh because he's not really mobile enough or enough of an athlete to be a pick and roll finisher at this point it may never get there but at this point i think we're really kind of rehashing our initial thoughts of him but i don't see anything in his statistical profile in the g league that changes much of what i thought going in uh in fact that 56 percent free throw is probably the one thing that i'm a little worried by and gochi's contract is very very team friendly he has january guarantee dates for each of the next three seasons so they could let him go pretty easily and like we talked about with tj mcconnell earlier his final season is a team option so theoretically if he does perform if he makes it through those next two years and they want to make him a restrictive agent maury or whoever replaces maury theoretically if he left would have that option where should we go next here Let's go to New Orleans. New Orleans has a a very short list since we're not going to count Anthony Davis, even though he had his age 24 season this year, just to give you a sense of how young he is. Frank Jackson had a completely lost year due to foot issues. This was his age 19 season, but he didn't play at all. So really the only guy that 
New Orleans has in this. They don't have any rookie scale contract players, which is ridiculous. Is Sheikh Diallo. Diallo had his age 21 season, his second year in the NBA. And he went from 28% of his shots coming in the restricted area all the way up to 46 percent which is an important jump you want you want to shoot a lot more of the restricted area if you don't have a real jump shot and he got to the free throw line more shot 79 percent from the line which is great so he became a more efficient player by getting into the realm that center should be in yeah i think that's really clear is that he is a center you know he could play with someone with ad ad is more of as more of a four on offense maybe a guy who's cost controlled that if they want to start a center next year and they don't necessarily bring back Kameka Okafor you know he could start as more of a speed center in a lot of matchups I think his ability to run the floor is a great fit for the pace that they were playing at getting rid of a lot of the bullshit long twos you know maybe that's something that can be more a part of the arsenal later uh maybe you can even stretch out to three at some point where I haven't seen that much of him yet and maybe that's just me not having seen as much film of him as I would hope is he didn't play that much in a lot of the New Orleans games I've watched but where can he be as a switch defender I think you know he's not a great athlete around the rim but good enough there I think he can probably a below average offensive center but he's managed to be efficient but then defensively can he bring a lot of effort can he block some shots as a help guy can he move his feet and switch that's really what i'm most interested to see i think that skill defensively is going to be part of it but certainly you have to be very happy with the way that he developed went from 199 which is basically just playing garbage time to 581 minutes was in the rotation at times and, and contributed positively from a statistical standpoint still certainly a play finisher uh but 17 percent usage is not incredibly terrible I and mean, when you consider that he had 62 percent true shooting can't really complain there but i think it's really what he's how he can evolve defensively that's going to determine you know whether he's going to be a back of the rotation guy or whether he could be more but even to be a back of the rotation guy uh, i think is big progress for him something else i liked about diallo this year was that he built he was a, a pretty decent defensive rebounder his rookie year but he was about 30 percent this past year which is great that's actually i think it was 14th among guys that qualified on espn's list and if he can bring that value i still don't love him as a rim protector it would help a lot all right we'll save memphis for another time here want to encourage you as well not going to do a, a full ad but if you've wanted to support the show and the sponsors for some reason haven't worked for you a great thing that you could do is uh join us in supporting team rubicon team rubicon usa.org slash cap space a great charity to donate to or volunteer with you'd find more about them at that team rubicon usa.org slash cap space url and uh, anything you need to talk about before we go to any you mentioned the real jam radio i did with david Locke. that was a lot of fun we previewed the western conference finals he you know, is the radio voice of the jazz so i knew he'd have a lot to say about the rockets we talked about that and their defense and the warriors offense and a lot of other different elements of that series and then we also talked about utah season where donovan mitchell might be going i think that was a lot of fun and i'm working on the offseason previews i believe the philadelphia 76ers one will be coming out on monday for the athletic i have a series of them that are going to be ready once we have the lottery results which will be on tuesday and so just kind of seeing where where all of that goes but i have some other ones that are ready so i think we're probably going to do like four a week of those for for the athletic and then i didn't get around to it this weekend but i should do the danny story time for that real gm piece 
in the next day or two, just depending on when I have time for it. And then I'll have a new, I recorded Real Jam Radio with Sir Sohi. I think I'm going to put that out on Tuesday. We talked about the prospect of Dwayne Casey getting fired before it actually happened, but a lot, a lot to get to there. But we can talk about that when it comes out because we're going to have podcasts the next couple of days. And also we're going to have Twitter NBA shows the next couple of days. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. We're going to be doing that uh, through probably the only games we won't do are the Golden State home games. Uh, so we're, uh, Really looking forward to doing that, getting back on the horse uh, for game one of this uh, awesome Warriors Rocket series. So we'll talk to you tomorrow night, wrapping up all that action as well. But hopefully you'll be there watching it with us live on the True NBA Show. Talk to you all tomorrow. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.